Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11 is where we'll be. But today we'll be looking together in the end of 2 Corinthians 11. We'll finish this chapter today, Lord willing. And uh, this is one of the most unique sections in Scripture, in all of Scripture, one of the most unique sections where you have a servant of the Lord recounting so many of his trials, pointing to so many of his weaknesses. It's a, it's a unique place. You'd do well to memorize that this chapter exists in 2 Corinthians 11. You certainly could try to memorize the whole chapter too if you wanted, but uh, to have 2 Corinthians 11 in your mind of this is where Paul explains some of his trials. And so let's look at them starting in verse 24. We began this last week, but let's start in verse 24 and read through verse 29. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. Paul says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Well, as a reminder, Paul is speaking this way in this chapter to set himself apart from those who were harming, those who were cheating the church in Corinth. The false teachers who had come in boasting in themselves, full of pride, full of false teaching, and harming these Corinthians. As they set Paul up for this battle of resumes, resume versus resume, you can perhaps think that they were expecting Paul to unravel all of his credentials, all of his earthly credentials, to make himself look really good, even better than they, that he would talk about how good of a teacher he is, that he would talk about all of his successes in ministry, that he would prove just how wise he is in his own strength. Resume versus resume. False teacher versus apostle of Jesus Christ. But Paul didn't do this, did he? He didn't lean on his pedigree we looked at last week. He didn't lean on his Jewish stock that he came from. He didn't lean on his religious credibility that he built up for himself. He didn't say, here are all my works that prove that I'm better than these other teachers. Instead, Paul leaned completely on his weaknesses. How counterintuitive is this? Paul, to prove himself as a true apostle, a good teacher in the Lord, he magnified his weaknesses. Now, of course, the big point that we looked at last week is that false teachers do not seek to sacrifice and suffer for the Lord. In fact, they do the opposite. They try to avoid sacrifice. They try to avoid persecution. They try to avoid suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul is laying these things out to show, he's again speaking as insane, he's speaking as a madman, but he's doing this to show that it's God's strength through him. It's not him himself, it's God's strength. 
He's a true servant of the Lord because he's willing to sacrifice for God that God's strength would shine through him. We looked at verse 26 last week, but we jumped over 24 and 25. So let's look at these instances he refers to, starting in verse 24. You'll notice that these are specific events. He gives a specific number of times that he suffered these things. These are things he has a detailed memory of. He probably has witnesses that could corroborate here and back him up and say, yeah, that really happened. And the first one he lists off in verse 24 is that he received from the Jews 39 lashes. He received from his fellow countrymen a beating with a whip that lasted 39 times. Now, why 39? What's special about the number 39? Let me read to you from the law. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they go to court, and the judges decide their case, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him forty times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes." So according to Jewish law, according to the law of God given through Moses, 40 lashes was the maximum amount. And to be safe, the maximum amount for Jews in Paul's day was 39. They wanted to go one short just to be safe. And so five times they gave him the number of whips according to his guilt, and for them it was the maximum amount. They could have picked 27, could have picked three, no, 39, five times the maximum amount. And what this usually looked like, I know in that passage it says he's to lie down before the judges, but in this day what would often happen is they'd have the guilty party, as they condemned him, grab a pillar, and they would take a whip that would be made from calf hide or donkey hide or sometimes mixed on a long handle, and they would whip him in the front for a third of the whips, 13 times. And the remaining 26, they would have him flip over and whip him 26 times. And while they would whip him with this very unpleasant object, they would have someone standing there reading from Deuteronomy 28, the cursings of the law. Cursed is the man who transgresses the law of the Lord. So not only was it painful, but it was absolutely humiliating. The point was to put them out in a public place so that all people could see this man as a sinner, a transgressor of the law. And this happened to Paul five times to this point. I imagine it happened several more times after this, and it happened because he was preaching Jesus. The maximum sentence, according to his fellow countrymen at this time, for preaching Jesus. Sad, sad deal. Verse 25, he says, three times he was beaten with rods. So this would refer to Romans beating him. Now, not Jews, but Romans. This is like the nightsticks of the Romans. They would come and they would beat Paul for preaching the gospel. Now, if you look back up at verse 23, you'll see he talks about beatings, and he says he was beaten times without number. But when it comes to these specific beatings from the Romans, these beatings with rods, he knows the exact number. It happened three times. He was beaten five times by his fellow countrymen, three times by the Romans. Once, it says, he was stoned, attempting to stone him to death. Now, this wasn't schoolhouse rock-throwing that they would do. 
This was with the intent to kill. Usually large boulders were involved. And we actually have an account of this one time in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 14, verse 19, it says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. You don't suppose someone to be dead when you throw pebbles, right? This was pretty serious stuff. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't. By God's grace, he got back up and started preaching the gospel again. It says in verse 25, three times he was shipwrecked. Now, what's fascinating about this is that in the book of Acts, we do have an account of one of Paul's shipwrecks. It was in Acts 27, but that was long after he wrote this letter. So before he wrote this letter, sometime in the book of Acts, he was shipwrecked three different times, and we don't have an account of those. He was probably shipwrecked more after that that we don't have an account of. But Paul was often going on voyages. He was going on missionary journeys, taking the gospel to so many people that had never heard of God before, never heard of Jesus before. He was going with the gospel on many ships, and there were many opportunities to be shipwrecked. And one of those times, it says in verse 25, he spent 24 hours in the sea. Can you imagine this? Being, not, not only being shipwrecked, we, we can't even comprehend what that is anymore, but being left in the sea for a night and a day. Scary enough when the sun's up, but at nighttime, dark, floating in the water. Wow. Maybe some of you have seen that show, I Shouldn't Be Alive. I don't know if they still make that. It's for the morbid like me. I, I like watching that show. It's like, well, yeah, you shouldn't be alive. That's crazy, but tell me more. Uh, Paul here, he, he could have been on that show, couldn't he? I shouldn't be alive. And again, this is just to a certain point in Paul's ministry. There were many more adventures that he had after this. He was left adrift 24 hours in the sea, but by the grace of God, he survived. Drop down to verse 27. He says, He's been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. More external challenges to his ministry, more difficult physical things that he had to deal with. When he says labor and hardship there at the beginning of verse 27, he's once again referring to serving God's people free of charge, serving people he was trying to reach with the gospel free of charge. This same phrase is used in 2 Thessalonians 3.8 because this was Paul's pattern in his ministry. He said to the Thessalonians, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it but with labor and hardship. Exact same phrase. We kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul's MO in missions, Christian missions, was to not take anything from the people he was serving, but to be a tent maker, to work with his hands, perhaps being a leather worker, to earn his own way, and that he would always pay for what he got so as not to take money from those he was seeking to reach. He also had many sleepless nights, it says in verse 27. Literally, this means he underwent many watchings. That's what that word means, watchings. He had no rest some nights due to external threats. There were people wanting to persecute him. Again, in the book of Acts, over and over again we see they were wanting to drag him into jail or kill him. He was always having to be on the alert, and sometimes that meant no sleep at all. Always had to keep his eyes open. Not only that, he underwent many nights, many days with hunger and thirst. 
This is not voluntary fasting that Paul's referring to. He's not saying, I I had these scheduled fasting days like the Methodists of old used to have. It was nothing like that. But he's talking about true neediness. He He was truly desperate. He had no food. He literally wanted to eat, but couldn't. He wanted to drink, but he couldn't. He had no food. He had no drink. He was hungry, and he was thirsty. And what is absolutely stunning in this is that he learned contentment through that. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about these very things, and he says that it was through this he learned to be content in the Lord. He told that church that he doesn't speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Whoa. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And here's that famous verse, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We read, sleepless nights, hungry, thirsty. How are you when you're tired and hungry? We'll find out when I get done preaching at two today. (laughs) We're not very good when we're hungry and we're tired and add thirst to that, right? But here, Paul learned contentment by the strength of God, by the power of God. Through Christ in him, he learned contentment. There's a great goal to set for yourself with Christian maturity. Can you be a Christian even when you're tired? Can you be a Christian when you're hungry? It's difficult, but by the power of God, you can, as Paul did. He says explicitly, verse 27, that he was without food. There were many occasions he had no one to take care of him. There was no one to give him food. He was on his own, hungry, thirsty. And in cold and exposure, he says, Paul had no climate control. This morning, I heard one of our Sunday school teachers talking about the temperature of her room. Paul had no climate control. Isn't that amazing? He was often without proper clothing. He was chapped and weathered. He didn't have the conveniences we have today, not even close. Now contrast this with the false apostles who certainly had very nice clothing. They were lotioned, had the perfumes they needed. They could walk into a room and make it smell better. And here comes Paul looking like John the Baptist or something, with camel's hair, chapped, weathered. What have you been through? Well, I was in the sea all night. And of course, that would be used against him. A teacher of God left alone in the sea, hungry, thirsty, without sleep? That doesn't sound like one of God's men, but he was. And Paul maintained this type of living until the very end of his life. I want to read to you an extended portion from 2 Timothy. Turn there with me, if you would, toward the back of your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I want you to see what Paul's life was like as he was about to die. This is the last section that Paul wrote, inspired by the Spirit, before his death. The last inspired letter written by Paul was 2 Timothy. Chapter 4 is the last chapter. Starting in verse 9, this is the last section of the last chapter. And look at what his life was like. It didn't get any better, in the world's eyes. It didn't improve with creaturely comforts. He was going hard in great difficult circumstances until the end. 2 Timothy 4.9, it says, Paul writing to this young pastor, make every effort to come to me soon. 
For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But when Tychicus, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he is vigorously opposed to our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Great passage, isn't it? Great passage. But look here at the people who deserted him. The false brethren, as he talked about in 2 Corinthians 11. They were still in Paul's life toward the end. He asks that the books be brought to him and the parchments. Paul was constantly leaving behind certain things if they could benefit others. And that included his very clothes. His cloak, it says in verse 13, his cloak which he left in Troas with Carpus. Paul was cold. He needed his cloak. To the very end, he was going through labor and hardship, in cold and exposure, in dangers from the elements, in dangers from false brethren. He gave his life, truly his life, to Christ. And he saw his rest as being in Christ in heaven. He didn't care about getting rest in this life. He was leaving it all on the field. He was going to leave it all on the floor, whatever sports analogy works better for you. He was, he was leaving it all out there because rest is for later. Paul would be comforted with those external physical comforts later. For now, he saw his, his entire life, the entirety of the life that God would give him to be for Christ. He refers to one more external challenge back in 2 Corinthians 11. Look down at verse 32 with me. This is a very interesting one. Starting in verse 32 of chapter 11, Paul describes the time he became a basket case. It says, In Damascus, the, in, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. What a very interesting predicament he was in. Fearing for his life with the other disciples, he was let down through a window in the wall in a basket. Let's look at this account in Acts. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up there for you. But Acts chapter 9 has the account of this. It says, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. There's a familiar theme. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. There it is. A basket probably used to collect fish or something like that, probably not clean. They didn't run it through the dishwasher before they put Paul in it. They didn't clean it. And here he is just 
like with the fish bones thrown into a basket and let down through a hole in the wall. Weakness. I mean, how helpless are you when you're in a basket and someone else is holding the rope being let down, smelling like whatever used to be in the basket? Paul is going to boast in his weaknesses. But it wasn't just the external pressures. Look at verse 28. He says, specifically, apart from the external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. This is not just a previous, isolated, one-time physical incident, but an ongoing internal pressure, an ongoing moving target for this apostle of God as a church leader, someone who was called to go out and plant churches and then oversee those churches, continue to communicate with those churches, continue to strengthen those churches. Paul had an ongoing internal pressure. And I bet that Paul would say, because he doesn't spell it out specifically here, but I bet Paul would say that that was more difficult than escaping people by being lowered in a basket. That's more difficult than being at sea for 24 hours. Because you're in sea for 24 hours, guess what? 25th hour, you're out of there. But this doesn't end. Dealing with the difficulties that churches have just doesn't end. Here we are, 2,000 years on, still going. Pastors, of course, feel this. Pastors deal with these kinds of pressures. But apostles, like Paul, even more so. Two times earlier this month, I received phone calls from friends I know. Both are outside of the state, okay? Uh, both are in the pastorate. Both are pastoring local churches. And both are going through difficulty in their churches. Two very different kinds of difficulty. And I get phone calls like this, I don't know, maybe once a month on average, but I had two in the same week earlier this month and just wanted a sounding board, wanted to talk through things, like I do with certain things. And it takes an hour at least to just get all the details in the room to try to start processing what's going on, because there's so many people involved, so many things to consider. Has this happened, or did this person do this first, or whatever, and you're getting all the details, and you talk through it, and there's no easy answer. You get all the details, and you start thinking through, okay, what could we do to honor Lord, by His Word, through this, and sometimes there's just no answer. That's a lot of pressure. And, and you think about pastors, they're the ones who will give an account. This is what it says in Hebrews. Obey your leaders as those who are going to have to give an account for your soul. And James, let not many of you become teachers. They will undergo a stricter judgment. Think of the apostles with even more responsibility, so much pressure. There are a couple of organizations I am connected to that plant churches or after they're planted, oversee those churches or at least help coordinate with those churches. And those people who are leaders in those organizations are constantly, I mean, this is like their full-time job, constantly talking to churches and pastors of churches and trying to help them and serve them in any way they can. Sometimes dozens of churches that they're coordinating with. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of burden. That's a lot of godly anxiety because you care about these people. It's a lot of pressure. And I don't think 
any of the pressure that we could feel today would compare to the pressure Paul felt as an apostle of God. Who He wasn't a pastor, but pastoring was certainly an aspect of his ministry. He cared for people in all these churches. You read through his letters, how often he's listing off people's names. He cared for those people. How did he remember all those names? It's not like he was given super-duper extra supernatural memory. Maybe he was. It doesn't say that. I think he just cared. I think Paul just cared. And he lists their names and he lists their circumstances. He remembers what they're going through. He knows whose house people are meeting in. And he gets to that point in verse 29 when he says, Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul identified with the people of these churches in their weaknesses. Who is weak without my being weak with them? That's what he's saying. Who is suffering without my suffering with them? Who is going through difficulty without me going through that difficulty with them? Internal pressure, internal intense concern. And you better believe that this was a pressure, this was a concern, this was an anxiety that the false apostles did not embrace. I was listening to a leadership podcast some time ago, and on that they were, it's a Christian podcast, kind of. They were really getting into some worldly thinking. And uh, one of the things they were talking about is getting ahead in life, financially and in every way that you can, because it's like getting up on the mountains. There's room up there. There's space up there. When you're down with all the worker bees down below, it's pretty crowded. It's a, it's a rat race down there. And you want to you wanna get up higher. Was that Paul's view of his ministry? No. He wanted to be down in the thick of it with them. He didn't want them to be weak without his being weak. He didn't want them to suffer without his suffering. He didn't want them to go through sin without his intense concern for their holiness. He wanted to know what was going on. He wanted to pray for what was going on. He wanted to be there for people because he cared. And that isn't just a ministry for apostles. That isn't just a ministry for pastors. That's a ministry for everybody in the body of Christ. That we would weep with those who weep. That we would rejoice with those who rejoice because we care because we know what's going on, because we ask questions, because we show up. That's the ministry of Jesus Christ that continues in the church, that we would be weak with one another, that we would weep and rejoice with one another, that we would have an intense struggle for holiness with one another. Don't miss that at the end of verse 29. Paul had intense concern when anyone was led into sin. It wasn't any small thing ever when a root of bitterness would spring up in a church, when rebellion would take place in a church. Paul had an intense concern. It's one word in the Greek for intense concern there in that passage, and he used it one other time with the Corinthians. It's kind of interesting. In 1 Corinthians 7, he said that it's better for two people to marry than to burn with passion. One word for burn with passion. Same word right here. Who is engaging in sin among the people of God without my burning passion for their holiness? Paul cared deeply that they would honor the Lord with their lives, every church. Why was he willing to go through all of that? That sounds not fun. 
All the different things you could put in that blank there. Sounds difficult. Sounds like nothing we would choose on our own. Why would Paul go through that? It's because the Lord was that precious to him. The Lord was worth it to him. Why would you ever choose a life like this? Why would you seek to imitate Paul? Remember he told the Corinthians, imitate me? Why would you choose to imitate him after reading that chapter? Is the Lord worth it to you? Is holiness worth it to you? To honor God, to please God in all things? This gets personal here, doesn't it? Is it worth it? That Jesus Christ, God Himself, came to earth, took on flesh, died in your place for your sins, and rose again for your justification, that you would be reconciled, redeemed, made right with God once for all. Does that change the rest of your life? It should. We just looked in my Sunday school class this morning at Titus 2, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Titus 2, 11 to 14. God redeemed us to purify for Himself a people zealous for good deeds. We are redeemed by Christ to be zealous for this life to serve the Lord, to serve God in all that we do, wherever He leads us, wherever He takes us. And to do that, we imitate Paul, not by doing exactly all the things he did. I'm not asking you to go find a shipwreck, okay? I'm not asking you to get fired up about being in Spring Lake all night tonight or something like that, okay? I'm not asking you to consider those types of things just for the sake of external imitation. I'm asking you to consider having a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ that you would say, along with Paul, wherever you lead, I will go. That you would have a passion that you would be weak, that God would be strong in your life, that you would boast in your weaknesses that the, that the glory of God's strength would shine through. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 30 and 31. He says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Paul embraced his weakness and we should too. Paul wasn't the first one to do this among the people of God. Every true servant of God throughout the Bible, as we read, has embraced his weakness and has been totally dependent on his Creator. You realize that the breath you're about to take doesn't come from you, right? There's not, you know, a string you pull in the morning to get your heartbeat going. Maybe with modern technology, some of you are getting there. I don't know. But, but the, you're not giving yourself a heartbeat. You're not giving yourself breath in your lungs. You are totally dependent on your Creator. Consider some of these examples in the Old Testament. Moses. Remember when Moses tried to tell God, no, don't use me? Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I, I've never been eloquent Neither recently nor in time past. I haven't gotten better. I've tried. Nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? (laughs) Dependence on Creator. Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. 
What about Gideon? Remember Gideon and what happened in his life? In Judges chapter 7, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. Remember what happened after that? Lord said, nah, still too many. Down from 10,000 to 300 in this battle. And the Lord gave him the victory, gave Israel the victory, totally dependent on their creator. How about this? King Josiah, you remember King Josiah? I think just this one verse that's just a description of Josiah will teach you our dependence. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Totally dependent on our Creator, aren't we? Eight years old. I've got a boy who's turning eight next week, and he's king of nothing. (laughs) Josiah, totally dependent on his Creator. Think of the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He went out to Israel over and over again, to Judah, calling them to repent. And we all know that famous chapter in Jeremiah that lists his thousands of converts. There is no chapter. We don't know if Jeremiah had any success. Totally dependent on his Creator. We see this in the life of Jesus, too. Did you know that Jesus Christ, when He walked this earth, embraced weakness? I mean, you could deduce that by the fact He even took on a body. He took on limitations. But in Luke 2.52, the end of Luke chapter 2, it says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Did Jesus need to increase in wisdom? Did Jesus need to increase in stature and favor with God and men? The man who is God, he has eternal wisdom. It says in Colossians chapter 2 that all the riches of the wisdom of God are hidden in Christ. But he embraced the life of being a humble servant, didn't he? He embraced limitations. He embraced weakness. Through his earthly ministry, he said, foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Weakness. Peter describes the weakness of Jesus that was embraced in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. He says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Take that to heart, Christian. What's Christ's example? Suffering. His example is not comfort. His example isn't a Sunday morning service that starts right on time and has all the exact things you want in it, and you get to leave right on time, and you get to make it to whatever lunch you have in your mind. That's nice. That's not sin. I enjoy all of that. But Christ's example is suffering. Suffering leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed." amazing passage. Paul, of course, states it plainly here 
that we are to have weakness, to boast in our weakness. And he consistently explained this in his writings. Last passage outside of 2 Corinthians 11, his first passage, or his first letter, rather, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he reminded them, saying, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world, weak, that's you, that's me, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. If we are going to boast We shall boast in our weaknesses because that glorifies the strength of God. It honors the strength of God. Our personal weaknesses are opportunities for God to glorify His strength. You ever thought about your weaknesses that way? I mean, first you have to admit you're weak. Maybe that's the first hurdle that some of us haven't cleared. But after that, we must see our weaknesses as opportunities for God to glorify Himself. He is the infinite personal God. He comes to us personally. As Tyler read for us earlier, the, the being filled with the fullness of God, He comes to us personally, and He brings with Him His infinite strength. Not that you're able to break pillars like Samson, not that you're able to you know, run marathons with that strength, but a spiritual strength. He comes giving you spiritual power that you could serve Him in your weaknesses. Weakness glorifies the God of no weakness. And it glorifies God above our perception of our own strength. You know, at the end of the day, weakness is how we're sanctified. How are you made holier in this life? How are you made more like your Savior in this life? It's by following in His steps of suffering. Suffering makes you more like Jesus. Being weak. Being dependent on the strength of God sanctifies you. Being weak ultimately causes you to grow in your dependence on God. Think of the times that you've you've felt your dependence on God most intimately. It's probably been in a hospital. It's been when you're alone and you're desperate. You're weeping and no one is there to wipe your tears. It's been when you've been struggling and you've, you've gone back to that sin again that you didn't think you would go to again? And there's nothing you can do to change yourself? There's nothing you can do to fix yourself? Dependent on God, totally dependent on God. It's in your weakness that you are sanctified. You are not sanctified in your strength. Christian strength is actually weakness to the world, isn't it? We're commissioned to be strong in the strength of the Lord. At the end of his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It doesn't say be strong in the Lord with all the strength you can muster up. To be strong in His might, to be dependent on the God of no weaknesses. Some people have said, God is just a crutch for weak people. Well, actually, God is life to dead people, if we want to be more specific. But that too, yeah, he's also a crutch. Once we, we, we have that life given to us, he is totally a crutch and we are totally weak. But he's more than a crutch, isn't he? 
He is life-giving spirit that day by day renews us in the inner man, causes us to grow in our dependence on him, and brings about strength through us, his strength, that he would magnify himself. You see, any movement out there, whether it's a secular movement or a religious movement, that calls for Christians strong-arming dominion in this life, that calls for Christians or, or people of God to go out and eliminate persecution in this life, to go be strong and establish your own rule, to establish your own comfort, it's backwards. And it's dangerous. Any kind of mindset that you could fall into that says, let's establish by our own strength comfort and authority in this life. It's wrong. We are to suffer in this life. You know, one of my favorite preachers, John MacArthur, a couple years ago, he came under fire for saying, we lose down here. The church loses down here. We are waiting for our victory to come from heaven. We are not here to establish some sort of a kingdom over the face of the, of the world, turn the world Christian in our own strength, apart from our Savior. He will come, and He will rule. He will set up dominion. He will set up our comfort. He will give us life. And until then, we suffer for Him. Until that day, we suffer for Christ. Until that day, we'll have our own little rap sheet of like what Paul went through here in 2 Corinthians 11. We will go through difficult things for the sake of Jesus Christ. We are to have the view that we are willing to sacrifice and suffer for the cause of Christ and to boast in our weaknesses. This life is for giving it all to God. We give all of life to Christ. We are strengthened in spirit even as we suffer in the flesh. When we seek to avoid this, I want you to hear this because we're in the middle of like maybe World War III. We have an election year coming up. We have all these things in the world in our minds and we're thinking about how can we fix these things. So I want you to hear this. I want you to take this to heart. We are to suffer in this life. We are not by our strength, by our own wisdom to fix the system so that we get comfort, that we avoid persecution. When we avoid persecution, we're actually following the example of the false teachers, aren't we? When we seek to avoid suffering, we're doing what the false apostles were doing in Corinth and in Galatia. We embrace these weaknesses so that dependence on God may grow. When we start thinking politically, we lose that. I've seen Christians over the last few months getting very excited about what's being called Christian nationalism, that we are to establish a Christian government, that the church should have as her mission to have political authority and political domination. And I've seen a lot of worldly chatter coming out of that movement, a lot of carnal thinking, a lot of dependence on self. Because if Jesus isn't here ruling as king, it's our job to do it apart from him, isn't it? It is laughable. It's foolish. We are to be weak 
in the Lord, but strong in His might. Weak in our flesh, strong with the strength that comes from God. Are we willing to give it all to the Lord in our weaknesses that He would glorify Himself and His strength? Are we willing to give this life to Christ that we would suffer following in His footsteps that He would be magnified in us? Got to think about these things, Christians, because we're living in some pretty twisted days. You ready? I hope so. Let's pray toward that end. God, we thank You that You have given us the promise that You will never leave us nor forsake us. You've given us the promise, as we'll look at next week, that Your strength is made perfect in weakness. God, help us to think with an eternal mindset, with eternity in view, that we wouldn't seek to establish our own little creature comfort zones in this world, but that we would set all of that aside, that we would see our rest as existing after this life, and that we would suffer for you for the sake of the gospel, that you would be magnified in us, you would be magnified through us, that people would be one to our Lord and Savior, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to have this view that Paul had, that we would imitate him even as he imitated Christ. Help us to be suffering servants for you, that you would be honored in all of life. And we ask for your help in these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.